body of Christ. You're the church in the world. You're those who have the answers to what the world desperately needs. And while the world may laugh and scoff at the truth of Christianity, there is nothing like it. There is no other religion that even comes close to comparing with what Christ has done. So we have the chance to adore him. We have the chance to feel his love, Doug. And we'll see that today uh, in our scripture passages. And it's just a beautiful thing to take a look at who Christ is, what he's done, why we can be confident and bold in our stand for Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm here to try to present this morning. And I just have to mention on that first song, Dale, didn't you love Dale up there? He's, man, he's just getting it on. It was great. I was just smiling. It was, it was super. Where is Dale? Is he here? Oh, there he is. Yeah. Good job, buddy. <clears throat> um, Dennis, Dennis isn't in here, right? So he put together this, this uh, description of what I'm going to cover this morning, and he did a great job. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Joe Greersbin. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce that. So it, it should be G-R-Y-S-B-A-N. That's the only faux pas in the whole thing. So um, glad to be here. So we're going to talk about the ultimate attitude today. You know, there's that old song, uh, uh, Attitude Adjustment. Anybody familiar with that? And as Christians, because we're in a battle, because we're in a spiritual battle, we consistently need an attitude adjustment, don't we? Does anybody, anybody relate to that? That sometimes it's before you even get out of bed in the morning that you need an attitude adjustment. Sometimes it's before you go to sleep at night that you need an attitude adjustment. Sometimes it's when the pressures of life or the pressures of a job or the pressures of anything get to you. Sometimes it's when you're suffering pain and you don't know what to do with it and you have to lay it at the cross. We need an attitude adjustment. And so I wanted to start this morning, and I'm sorry about the, the text size. I can read it, but probably a lot of you can't. Um, I'll try to increase that next time I do this. Uh, I wanted to start, and actually in Romans, and this is a hymn of praise. I, this is probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But I think what it does, what I'm trying to get us to do this morning is to launch us toward a deeper and fuller contemplation and understanding of who God is and what Christ has done for us. So this really helps us because it's, it, it puts us in our place. So it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now the funny thing is, can you believe that you get to spend eternity with this God? Do you believe that he's loved you enough to send his only begotten son into the world to save you, to give you eternal life. That's who this is. 
That's who this is. And while he is beyond our understanding, beyond our able, ability to really grasp the fullness of who he is, we, un, we do understand what we need to understand, and that is he came to seek and to save the lost, which is me, which is you. So I wanted to start out with that, um, and we, we, we're going to talk about uh, the light of who God is and what Christ has done, and then what will it take, and this is what Philippians really is in a nutshell, what will it take for the church to be the church, and when I mean be, I'm not talking about necessarily just doing the right things. It's becoming someone different. Because Christ has changed us. Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So being transformed doesn't happen just by obeying some kind of list of rules and regulations. Being transformed is getting to know the God of the universe. Being transformed is looking at God. It's kind of like Isaiah, when he saw God, he fell flat on his face. Anybody that's ever seen God, or even at the transfiguration when they saw, they just, you know, they worshipped. They worshipped. I think it was Isaiah that says, I, I, I'm undone. Let's get undone, church, right? But the only way to get undone is to see. The only way to get undone, to, to have that dynamic God, who is the creator of the universe, change us, is to look, and to look deeply, and to look with, with contemplation, with thankfulness, with deep gratitude, and with a sense that we ain't him. We ain't God. He is he. Amen? So one thing, in order to get there, is to understand that God is very... God is, I'll tell this brief story. Uh, I, I grew up as a non-practicing Roman Catholic. I got saved in a cult, uh, and I believe they taught salvation, and it was later that you found out, okay, they don't believe in the Trinity. Um, so that was a surprise. But, but I didn't know anything about the Trinity anyway. So for years, I didn't believe in the Trinity. I believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God that came to save the world, you know, and that was the only way to heaven, but I didn't believe in the Trinity. Isn't that weird? So... For me, there was a, a transformation point where I came through the Holy Spirit, really, to come and see that the Trinity is true. It wasn't, it wasn't a teaching. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a school. It was the Spirit leading me to show me that the Trinity was true. And ever since that point, I've become a very strong Trinitarian. And the reason is because I'm sold on it. I'm sold on the whole idea of what the Trinity represents. And most of us don't understand it, do we? Isn't the Trinity hard to understand? It's difficult to grasp. Three and one, okay. Well, I don't know anybody like that, right? Three and one. Three persons, one God. How do you figure that one out? Who is this God who's a, who's a triune God? But the one key for me that holds the beauty of the Trinity together is it's relational. It's relational. God at the very core of his being is relational. 
Doesn't that make sense and fit with the rest of Scripture? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is relational. God does what it takes to establish, restore, fix, heal relationships. And if you look out into the world, the thing that you see the most as far as brokenness goes is what? Relationships. Isn't that true? Man. I mean, not only relationships as far as divorce and those kinds of things, but relationships as far as just conflict. Just conflict. And sometimes the holidays are good at bringing that out in people. You know, there's pressures, there's schedules, there's things that are going on, and so then the relationship, there's conflict. So what does it mean that God is a trinity? And what does it mean that God is relational? Well, it means perfect unity. Amongst the three persons of the Trinity, there's absolute perfect unity. Nobody's trying to outpower the other one. Nobody's trying to up the other one. There is respect and honor that's given. There's also perfect love. And perfect love amongst the three uh, persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a beautiful thing to observe. That's something that when we look at trying to understand God, those are some of the things we need to take a look at. We need to meditate upon. We need to go to the scriptures and see what's going on there. Uh, There's also perfect harmony. So there's not three truths, three sets of truths. There's really not even three ways of looking at something. There's one way of looking at something, what three contributors to it. And sometimes three ways to accomplish it so, so they say the Father is the architect, the Son is the builder, so to speak, and the Holy Spirit is the supplier. So there's, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it and contemplate it. I'm, I'm, if you go and you study Christian history, the Trinity was huge in Christian history, and I think we've lost that a lot. We've failed to teach that, both in seminaries uh, which I graduated from, and in the church. And I'm, my, my prayer is that we'll rediscover the beauty of the Trinity because it's if you understand God, then you understand life. If you don't understand God, life will always confuse you. Life will always bring you down. Life will always take your attitude and push it in a direction it does not need to go. But if you understand God, then the attitude comes with it. So there are some keynotes in Philippians Well, am I doing it wrong? Okay, let me try this. There we go. Uh, Philippians is a beautiful letter. It's it's the thing about Philippians is Paul's not Paul does not bring about any church problem in Philippi. So he's not he's not writing the Philippians to address an issue which a lot of the other epistles are that way. He's writing to address certain issues that are going on in the church. Philippians isn't that. Philippians is, and because of that, Philippians isn't a, uh, a doctrinal treaty. It is a, it's a letter of encouragement and exhortation, but it's one that is so deep, it's amazing. And I think the reason is, is because Paul has such a relationship with the Philippian church They were the ones that supported his ministry and the only ones that supported his ministry early on. 
They were the ones that sent him support. He was their missionary. And I don't know if you remember the stories in Acts about Philippi. Uh, It was the Philippian jailer who got saved when Paul and Silas, I think it was, were in prison. And uh, the, the, the doors opened and the Philippian jailer came in and his family was, you know, completely saved. It was Lydia down at the river who also got saved in Philippi. So Philippians, Paul's relationship with the Philippians is amazing. And so that's what you see is a heartfelt missionary letter from Paul the Apostle for his thankfulness to them for their partnership in the gospel as well as a report on the progress of his work. You also see that through his own example, and this is the other beautiful thing about the book of Philippians, Paul's not just telling them what to do. He's not just telling them truth. He's saying, this is what I'm doing. This is how I think. This is the examples that I'm setting for you. Follow them. Follow them. So through his own example, he challenges them to a vigorous type of Christian living. This is the other thing you see in Philippians, is a type of vigorous Christian living. Unity, and there's the verses, self-humbling, pressing toward the goal, a lack of anxiety, and ability to do all things through Christ. Attitude. You just see attitude oozing all through that challenge on this vigorous type of Christian living. The other cool thing is uh, Philippians is, is, is outstanding as the, as the New Testament letter of joy. Because the word joy in its various forms occurs some 16 times in Philippians. Is that attitude? Maybe there's a little attitude in joy. Joy's a good attitude to have, right? So that's the other part of Philippians. And then, and then it also contains one of the most profound Christological passages in the New Testament. And that's going to be my focus uh, today. <clears throat> so Philippians is full, it's exhortive, it's challenging, it's profound, and you'll see it's fulfilling. So in order to understand chapter 2, we need to just do a brief overview of chapter 1. Chapter 1, he tells of his love and thankfulness for them. And you'll see in verse 8, he says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, I, I was very moved by that today, and that's what I thought of, was the affection of Jesus Christ. And as far as I know, this is really the only place that that, sh- that term is used when Paul's talking about a church. Here he is, he's, he's not telling them what to do, he's saying that how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, that kind of that shakes me a little bit. Because I tend to think sometimes about Jesus Christ and the gospel as more the right way to live or things to do, you know. Uh, uh, this, is how, this is holy living, this is, this is you know, how you be a Christian, you know, kind of thing. And, and I don't focus enough on the affection of Jesus Christ. The affection of Jesus Christ. And I don't know, I mean, if you just take a, a moment and begin to ponder that, begin to meditate upon that, begin to pray into that, the affection of Jesus Christ. Lord, show me your affection. 
Couldn't we, I don't know about you, I could use more of that. I could use more of a taste of the affection of Jesus Christ. I could use that as, as a platform in order to, for me to be transformed in my walk, in my living, in how I view life, right? In my attitude. If I, if I really felt the affection of Jesus Christ, what would my attitude be? And what would my attitude be in the world? In the world. The other thing he talks about in chapter 1 is this suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is, this is the other key thing for me in studying Philippians that has been huge, a huge change. Is I was talking with David uh, at the end of the Christmas service, the Christmas Eve service, just, up, just about how I've, I've just come to realize it's, it's not a burden to suffer for Christ. It's an honor. It's, it's, not, it's not something you have to grit your teeth through suffering for Christ. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. And, and if we're really living out the gospel and you read the book of Philippians, it's not when suffering, or it's not if suffering is going to come, it's when. Because both the Philippian church and Paul suffer for Christ. You can see right here in verse 13, it says it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now in America, you know, at least right now, we probably don't have to worry about being in chains for Christ. We do have to worry about people taking our businesses away for taking a stand on the truth. We do have to worry about maybe laws being passed that would impinge upon Christian liberty in our country. We do have to worry about those things. And if we fail as a church, as believers, to take a stand on some of that stuff and just allow it to flow by and get past and everything else, then the chains will come. But we have brothers and sisters around the world where they are literally in chains for Christ. They are literally persecuted, killed, their families murdered because they stand for Christ. And so, because the world doesn't get it. Even the major religions don't get it. Because they don't, the reason is, is because they don't have this relationship with the God of the universe. So what, what becomes God is moi. What becomes God is my ideology. What becomes God is some systematic way of thinking. And therefore we take, the, they, you know, other religions will take this stand, or even non-religions, you know, uh, atheists will take this stand on a certain set of principles, and they don't even realize that they have their own religion. They can say they don't have a religion, but they do. Because the God is them. They're their own God. They decide what's right and wrong. And if you don't agree with that, then you're in big trouble, right? So here we are. Paul is in chains for Christ. And then, oh my gosh, this is the deep part that I'm talking about. His stellar attitude in the midst of it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When's the last time you made that confession? You know, when, when's the last time in your prayer life you're before the Lord? Lord, for me to live is Christ 
go ahead and let me have it. To die is gain. You know, when's the last time you, you, were, you were, you know, in the, in the midst of a conflict, bring it on, you know. The idea of being, having the right attitude in the midst of being persecuted or suffering for Christ. And then finally, how they should respond, Paul's encouragement to them. So here he sets his, his examples here of how he deals with it. And then he says, this is how you should respond. Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Wow. How many churches are doing that today? I mean, we hope we do it to some degree, right? But how, how many churches are really, this is really what, you know, you look at them, this is really what they're doing. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, not the advancement of their denomination. Hmm, ouch. Not the, not the growth of their organization, the largesse of their church, the, the, the uh, awesome abilities of their worship team. Striving as one man for the faith of the gospel. Paul keeps it very simple. I love it. I love it. It's simple. It's simple. And we get so distracted. In America, we get so distracted. And a lot of that is just we're so material-oriented. You know, we just lose what's really of value. We, we fail to grasp and make a priority the things that are really of value. So, the thing that Philippian tells us is what Christ has done, but then also what he's come to do. And what he's come to do is mission. So we have faith and mission. That's Philippians in the nutshell. <clears throat> Paul is all about the gospel. And the reason he's so, he, he has such affection of Jesus Christ for the Philippian church is because they are partakers, they are partners with him in the spread of the gospel. That's what Paul's all about. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. He's all about the gospel. He's in prison. He's in chains. But he's, while he's in the Praetorian Guard, he's spreading out. The, he's getting the word out, right? He's witnessing. He's winning people. He's, you know, there's, there's, the truth is going out. And they were partners with him in that. Both, both financially and in heart. And we'll see that as we go on. So what has Christ done? If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So by being in Christ, they're experiencing encouragement. They're experiencing love. They're experiencing fellowship with the Spirit. They're experiencing affection and mercy in Christ. They're experiencing joy. 
They're experiencing all these things by being united with Christ, by being in Christ. And Paul, what Paul is saying is if you, if you see this benefit by being united with Christ, then guess what? Act like it. Act like it. Go through the attitude adjustments that you need in order to be this same way. So, And he's going to challenge us in a minute that is just profound, this next challenge that's coming up. But he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. And I've, I've come to realize that, you know, it's, there's an old, I'm going to misquote it probably, but we have found the enemy and it's us. Have you ever heard that quote? It's in some army thing. But, but really, the enemy is moi. That's the real enemy. I mean, we can talk about the devil, and it's true, but, but the real enemy is me. The enemy in the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve. The devil was the tempter, yes, but ultimately what pulled the string was their desire to be more like God and not in a good way, and not in a good way. So all the time, we always want to be on the, on the you know, right side of the decision, right? We always want to be the ones that make the call, that decide for ourselves, you know. And a lot of times it's selfish ambition or conceit. But then he says, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So the reason for Paul's oozing attitude, and I called it his oozing attitude because it really is. When you read Philippians, it just oozes out. I mean, his whole attitude is just phenomenal in this book because he's so relational with the Philippian church. So the reason for Paul's oozing attitude is found in Christ, because of Christ, and ultimately for Christ. In other words, Paul was all in. He was all in. There wasn't this reserved spot over here somewhere. There wasn't this protected area over here. He was all in. Don't we all want to be all in? And we know, in many ways, maybe we're not. Maybe we're not all in. Maybe there are certain things that we self-protect certain things that we try to be self-sufficient in, and we really don't give that license, that ownership to Christ. And there we are. And that's, that's what I mean. It's an attitude adjustment. Paul later says in Philippians chapter 4 that, uh, that he hasn't arrived yet. So even Paul has, says he hasn't arrived that he's still pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. So it's, it's, not, it's not an arrival. It's a continual adjustment. It's a continual transformation. It's a continual sanctification. So then we get down to the reality. Ooh. Jesus set the bar very high. He set the bar very high. Sometimes that can be discouraging. But the, the, here's, the, here's the key to that. And this is where your attitude can be great. Here's the key to the bar being set so high is that he also enables you to accomplish it. 
It's not up to you. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. He, by the Spirit, can fill you to the place where you can actually accomplish these things. Are you going to be perfect? No. Are you going to fall? Yes. Are you going to fail? Absolutely. Did his disciples? Yes. And it's amazing. It's amazing. But when I, in, in my prayer, morning prayers, one of the things I do for our family is I, I pray, God, fill us with your spirit. We desperately need your spirit. Because according to Romans 6, without the spirit, we're carnal. Without the spiritual mind, we have spiritual death. Right? So we desperately need the spirit in order to accomplish the Christian life. We desperately need the spirit in order to make the attitude adjustment. We desperately need the spirit to equip us to live like Christ, to live like Christ. So what what it says here is adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Wow. Is that a high bar or what? He didn't say, you know, I'm down here in my note, the same. Well, what is it not saying? It says the same attitude. Adopt the same attitude. Not a similar one. Not something that's kind of close. Not a so-so one. Not an okay one. Not, not an acceptable one. The same. Ow, that hurts. Because I know I don't have it. I know I'm not there yet. I know I have not arrived yet. But he's, that's what it says. The same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, or had the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Wow, is that deep? I mean, I've just been reading this stuff and thinking. I really have, because it's, and I'm still not there. I'm, it's like, wow. But as I continue to read and pray and ask God for, to show me stuff, um, he did not consider equality with God And here it says, in this translation, is something to be exploited, and I kind of like that. Other translations, as something to be grasped or as something to hold on to. So in other words, he's God, but he chooses to at least let those privileges, that that glory, go. Man. So what about our privileges and our glory? If we're to have the same attitude as Christ, then we have to hold on to pretty much everything with a loose grasp. If we want the same. And this this is Paul's challenge to the Philippian church. It's amazing. It's deep. It's it's profound. So here he says, and then he in this translation it says equal with God is something to be exploited. There's some issues in the Greek on what that really means. Uh, some people say it's like it's like a, a thief grabbing booty or grabbing you know robbing a house or whatever. 
The interesting thing is a lot of theologians have gone the direction of saying this is a, this is a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. And I kind of like it. Uh, I'm not saying that is the, what Paul's trying to communicate here necessarily. But if you think about it, what did the first Adam do? God gave him one command, right? You can eat of every tree in the garden, just not that one. And what was the devil's temptation? If you do this, you're going to be like God. And so they snatched it. And when they snatched it, they caused oodles and oodles of problems. <laughs> right? You and I are the evidence of that. Oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles of death. Spiritual death. Separation from God. Man. So they, they and because they were trying to be what they shouldn't be. That's why I love that Romans uh, uh, hymn because it's so, God is God, don't try to be God. <laughs> and, you know, for me, I, my favorite types of sermons are what I call two-by-four sermons. It's the ones that whap you outside the head, or ball bat sermons, because I need them. Um, so it, it was not something to be exploited. In other words, in order for Jesus to redeem mankind, and you know, we don't understand all the fullness of the reasons why behind all this, but he had to become like us in every way. Uh, David covered this uh, last uh, Sunday out of Hebrews, that he had, as a high priest, he had to become like us in every way in order to be our high priest. In order to really do the job correctly, he had to let go. He had to release. And it's an amazing... Can you imagine... He had to become a baby. There wasn't another way. He had to become a baby. And here we are at Christmas time. The amazing, the creator of the universe has to become a baby. You talk about trust in the sovereignty of God. You know, he's not, he's not a baby and he's got this cape on and he's, you know, super baby. And he's, fly, he's flying around, you know, the universe and doing stuff and... and He's a baby baby, just like a baby baby we have, except with no sin, right? So he comes in and he empties himself. And a lot of, a lot of that has through the idea of becoming like us, taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And when he had come as a man, ooh, here it is, he humbled himself. I don't know about you, when I read little phrases like that, they just they just get me. You could repeat that all day long and it'd change your life. He humbled himself. Wait, he's God. He belongs on the throne. He, he's the creator of the universe. He gives life. He humbled himself. My goodness. Who am I? Who are we? That's why we want the same attitude. He, 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 he placed the bar very high, but he also gives us the assurance that he's going to fulfill it within us when we trust in him. So he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And there's another one. Obedient to the point of death. See, you could take that phrase too and just repeat that throughout the day to yourself. <laughs> 
obedient to the point of death. Ow. You know, and then, then, then they add to, there's another addition there, even the death on the cross, which was one of the most brutal, most shameful deaths that any human being could ever experience. That's what he did. That's what he did. And it's just absolutely amazing. He was willing, he consented to die. The God of the universe. Even the death, even the death on the cross. Uh, in the commentary that I uh, read on Philippians, one of them, uh, by Moitier, Alec Moitier, uh, he says self is something to be poured out. And I like that phrase because I think that's our battle. So we have this battle of either pouring out ourselves or protecting ourselves. Either pouring out ourselves or elevating ourselves. Either pouring out ourselves or putting down others so we can look better. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Just look out in the world and you see it all the time happening. So that is our challenge. That's what we're here to do. That is our mission. Um, and the, the, the phenomenal thing is that we're called then to endure. Uh, and the, the point I want to make in this is that even though this is our mantle, this is our cross that we pick up and we carry, there's more. This isn't the end. Woohoo! Right? This isn't the end. It wasn't the end for Christ either. It's not the end, but it was what it took to accomplish it. And I'll tell you this, the other thing that's really struck me in studying this stuff is that Jesus Christ isn't any different. He's the same. He's, he, he still has this attitude. But you know where it comes, you know where it's supposed to be coming through? The church. Because we're still in the world. We haven't, we haven't been ascended yet. We're still here. We're still here, and this still needs to be the message to the world. That's us. That's us. That's our mission, folks. We have faith in the accomplishment of Christ, what he's done on the cross on our behalf, that he's given us new life, eternal life. But this is our mission. And so we reach all over the world trying to fulfill what Christ and being that example of what Christ is. And we'll see that in a few minutes. So, it wasn't over there. Jesus Christ, and this is really interesting, because in, in the Adam, first and second Adam scenario, this, the Adam and Eve self-exalted themselves, or tried to. They tried to self-exalt themselves. And they had a good teacher, because the devil did that too, didn't he? So the devil was the tempter. He self-exalted himself. It didn't work out real well for him, but he was going to take as many people down as he could get, including God's creation, God's uh, uh, ultimate creation in man, God's image. So, but Jesus didn't exalt himself. It says, for this reason, God 
highly exalted him. So in other words, Jesus obeyed the Father, and that's a whole other story, but he obeyed the Father perfectly, trusting completely in God's ability to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, and this is the end of the accomplishment. That God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wow. It's no wonder Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because he saw it. The the suffering is not the end. The, The chains are not the end. He is worthy of everything we could possibly ever, ever give him. Because he gave us everything. He died for us. And this is our call to die for him, in, in both in a living and a physical sense. So, I want to, before we jump into Paul's application here, which is very brief, I just wanted to read this poem. Though he was rich, so rich, yet for our sakes, how poor he became. Even his garments they parted when they hung him on the cross of shame. All that he had he gave for me, that I might be rich through eternity. And Paul closes, and I don't have this on a slide, in Philippians 2, 12 through 16, closes, he doesn't really close, but he's, he, this is his, he uses the therefore. And so whenever you see the therefore, it's there for a reason. So he says, therefore, my dear friends, after, just after saying all this, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. And that's one of those pondering things too. It's God's doing it. God is doing the work. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Once again, an attitude. So that you may be blameless and pure mission. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world holding firm to the word of life. Wow. It's a high bar. It's a high calling. And uh, I'm going to close with a word of prayer and then uh, we're going to have a song that I thought was appropriate to the message. Lord, we're thankful for your incredible grace in our lives. Lord, it's just mind-blowing that you would come as a baby and redeem man, uh, stinky, dirty, sinful man, and yet you so love the world that you gave. And Lord, I pray that we would catch that vision, catch that desire, uh, and have our attitudes transformed and changed by it, and then go out into the world as your shining stars. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.